We looked earlier at the idea of preaching Christ or preaching the gospel in the Old Testament or from the Old Testament. And I, I pray that it was fruitful. I trust that it was fruitful and helpful to think through how we especially deal with Old Testament narrative and never lose sight of the fact that all of the scriptures ought to be preached as Christian literature. That, that there's not this left side of the Bible that's all about works righteousness and the right side of the Bible that's all about grace. Uh, there's not this left side of the Bible that's about you know the law and the right side of the Bible that's about the gospel. Um, we have to understand the, the purpose for which God gave us all of scripture and that Christ is the interpretive key to all of scripture. Now, usually, you know, we'll get a bunch of nods when you talk to people about the need or our need for being more Christocentric or more gospel-centric, if you will, when we're preaching the Old Testament, particularly Old Testament narrative. But I've also found for myself that as I've thought through this idea of preaching the gospel at all times, regardless of where I am in, in, in Scripture, I've found that there's oftentimes in the New Testament where we're not preaching Christ. In the New Testament, when we preach works righteousness. And that's because of our confusion of two concepts. The idea of indicatives and imperatives. And not distinguishing between indicatives and imperatives. And in doing so, not distinguishing between indicatives and imperatives and talking about the relationship between indicatives and imperatives in the text, we are in danger of doing the same thing in the New Testament that we do in the Old. We're pretty familiar with imperatives. Um, imperatives are those passages of Scripture that tell us what to do. Um, they are commands. Do this. Do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Those are imperatives, and they are important. They are essential. They're all over the Scriptures, all over the New Testament, these imperatives. However, in the New Testament, you never find imperatives disjoined from indicatives. What are indicatives? Well, the indicatives tell us what God has done in us, through us, and on our behalf through the person and work of Christ. Let me say that again. The indicatives tell us what God has done in us and through us and on our behalf through the person and work of Christ. The indicatives are important because they show us why we are able to obey the imperatives, and they also motivate us to obey the imperatives. If we don't have the indicatives and we just have the imperatives, all we have is works righteousness again. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. If it's not connected to who we are in Christ, if it's not con connected to what Christ has done in us, for us, and through us, there are several dangers. Let me just mention a few. Here's the first danger. The first danger is lost people coming into our midst and just hearing us talk about, again, 10 ways to have a happy life, five ways to reduce stress. And what we communicate to them is that Christianity is really just a self-help religion. They're just some things that you need to do, some principles that you need to know. And if you go into this book and find those principles, your life will be all better. 
that it's just about you being a better man, a better woman, a better son, a better daughter, a better husband, a better father, period. And if you just obey these rules, you can get there from here. When we do that, we lead people away from the gospel. We lead people away from their dependence upon Christ, and we lead them toward works righteousness. We harden them in their sins. The other thing that we do is we give this disjointed idea to believers. Believers think that they need the cross to be saved, but not to be kept. Saved by grace, sanctified by law. That's what many Christians believe. Saved by grace, sanctified by law. So Jesus gets us kick-started, but then I'm on my own. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. (laughs) Folks, the one who saves us is the one who keeps us. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what my book says, amen? Amen. Or the author and the finisher, depending upon your translation. In other words, Jesus does not just kickstart our Christian life and then cheer us on and hope we do real good. But we are utterly dependent from beginning to end on Christ. But when we preach imperatives and don't connect them to indicatives, what we do over time is build up a sense of self-righteousness and self-dependency in believers as they listen to that kind of preaching. And so I, I, I just need to come to church so I can hear four or five things that I need to do this week to be better. Here's the danger of that. If I don't do them, then I beat myself up because I haven't risen to the occasion. But even worse, if I do, I pat myself on the back because I believe I have actually accomplished something in and of myself. That's a problem. So what I want to do is I want us to look at a passage of scripture that is, I believe, one of the prime examples of of a kind of trap for us to miss the indicatives and just preach the imperatives. Because remember what we talked about, the idea that all of us are trained in and the way that we do exposition and we're sort of atomistic and you take this paragraph and act like it's the only thing in the world. And maybe you look at the paragraph before it, maybe you look at the paragraph after it, but you just it's right here and that's it and, and that's all you deal with. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4. There's a, there's a series of imperatives here. There are also indicatives, but we usually don't think about those. But there's a series of imperatives here that I believe are an example of one of those sort of trap passages where we can be very much committed to works righteousness and not gospel-centered preaching, even in the New Testament. So I want us to look at this passage, and I want us to look at the importance of these imperatives, because these imperatives are important. That's, That's another myth out there. A lot of people, first of all, the first myth is the idea that when you talk about Christ-centered preaching, you're talking about moralizing or spiritualizing the text. I hope we've dispelled that earlier today. But another myth is that when you talk about this Christ-centered preaching or this gospel-centered preaching, uh, well, then, you know, it's just, it's just all grace and, and no righteousness. You, there's never a call to righteousness. You never call people to do anything. Just look to Christ, look to Christ, look to Christ. By the way, that's doing something. Um, But at any rate, and it's more important than anything else we can do, by the way, because we can't do anything else unless and until we do that. And if I'm doing something else without doing that, 
then I'm depending on something other than Christ. Amen. So if I'm going to be faulted for something that I wear as a badge of honor, it's pointing people to Jesus too much. I'll take that one on the chin. All day, every day, twice on Sunday. Okay? Say that about me. He just point people to Jesus too much. Thank you, Lord. So these imperatives are important, but they have to be couched properly. What I want us to do is look at the passage. Just read through the passage. It's very familiar. But then what I want us to do is look at the broader context and see if we can learn something here. By the way, the classic example of indicative and imperative, I I, I would argue, is found in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. You know, we're told in verse 12 to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's an imperative. That's something to do. It's probably the scariest imperative in the whole Bible. Work out your salvation with fear and trip. I got to be scared, God. I, I, I work, and why do I have to work it out and have to do it with fear and trembling? That's just, that's bothersome to me. That's the imperative. Where's the indicative? Next verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the indicative. That tells you who you are in Christ what God has done in you, for you, and through you, through the person and work of Christ, in order to enable you and to motivate you to accomplish the imperative. If I don't have that indicative, all I have is fear and the hope of maybe some self-righteousness. Please tell me you see that. Now let's look at this passage. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 25. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Just bam, bam, bam. Imperative, imperative, imperative. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ also forgave you. Folks, you could preach that paragraph and just crush a church. It crushes me. I, I don't know about you, but I read that paragraph and I'm just like, I can't do that. <laughs> on a good day, I'm, I'm, you know, and then on a the good day when I get close, I'm proud. And that's a whole nother problem to deal with. Amen. Somebody. Amen. That's weighty. And it's just imperative after imperative after imperative. Do this, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. It's there. It's right there in the text. So what's a preacher to do? Preach it and preach it hard. But don't forget where it is. What do you mean? Well, it's in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians was not meant to be read paragraph by paragraph. It was meant to be read in one sitting. And when you read it in one sitting, you understand it completely differently than when you read it paragraph by paragraph. And when you read it in one sitting, something leaps out at you. And that is that the first three chapters 
are indicative and the last three chapters are imperative. So if I'm preaching from the second half of the book, I'm preaching the imperatives. If I'm not reaching back to the first half of the book, I'm doing a disservice to what Paul did because he never intended Ephesians to be taught like that or understood like that. Okay? But I'm also limiting my ability to understand the significance of what I'm dealing with in the second half of the book. So I have to understand that these imperatives are rooted in indicatives. By the way, I said the first half is imperative, second half is indicative. That's not completely accurate. The first half is, I mean, or the other way around. First half is indicatives. The second half is imperatives mixed with indicatives. So what do you think Paul thinks is most important? Indicatives. And he divides it right there in chapter 4 with a therefore statement. So the end of chapter 3 ends with an amen or doxology. That lets you know he just ended something. And then chapter 4 begins with a therefore statement. That lets you know he began something. So Paul wants you to understand that there is a huge distinction between the first three chapters and the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And so in that first three chapters, we see these grand indicatives. But here's what I want you to understand. At the end of each of the first three chapters, there are three major indicatives that are the interpretive keys to the entire book of Ephesians. You get these and it changes everything. That's why I wanted to read that passage for you first. We read the passage before we did this. We're going to go back and look at the passage again. And my prayer is that it just messes you up to the glory of God. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I don't know about you. When somebody's preaching, I just want them to mess me up every now and again. Amen. What good is listening to somebody preach if they're not going to mess you up? All right. So let's look at the end of each of these chapters and look at these grand indicatives. Look at the end of chapter one. Beginning at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The first chapter is all about Christ and what Christ has done. But the grand indicative here is about unity in Christ's body. Put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So again, I, I, I misspoke there. The, the, the first indicative is about Christ's headship over his body. I got ahead of myself. You see that there at the end of chapter one, Christ's headship over his body. This is the first major point that Paul wants us to see and understand. The significance of Christ as the head over his body. Chapter two, look at the end of chapter two. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, household. Look at the other language that he uses. Built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being a cornerstone. Household built, foundation, cornerstone. There's a picture here. Amen? But then watch what he does. Notice how he goes from a physical house to a spiritual house in whom the whole structure, there we go, another structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now he went from a physical house where people live 
to a spiritual house. By the way, he does this in chapter 5 when he talks about marriage, your physical household relationship, and the relationship between Christ and his church, the spiritual household relationship. The key to it is right here in this indicative in chapter 2. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Keep that in mind. What is the Spirit of God doing? He's building us together into a dwelling place for God. Hold on to that because it's going to be important. So the first grand indicative is Christ's headship over his body. The second grand indicative is unity in Christ's body. That's what this letter is all about. Christ's headship over his body and then unity in Christ's body. Then there's a third one at the end of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, that's important, according to the power at work within us, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. There's the glory that the body gives to its head. So, so, so I want you to say these with me. First one, Christ's headship over his body. Excellent. The second one, unity in Christ's body. Unity in Christ's the third one is the glory that the body gives to its head. Now, I know we're dealing with chapter four here, but I've got to give you a little bonus material, if you don't mind. If it's, if it's can I get a little, some of this right here? I'm just going to give you a little bonus, bonus material, okay? Let's go to chapter five. Let's go to chapter five. This is not what I'm going to be preaching on, okay? It's not what I'm going to be preaching on. You're going to want me to, but I'm not going to be preaching on this, all right? Remember those three grand indicatives. The first one is Christ's headship over his body. The second one is unity in Christ's body. And the third one is the glory that the body gives to its head. Oh, okay, great. So we got wives submitting to husbands there in 22 because of his headship, which is a picture of Christ's headship over his body. But I want you to see the next paragraph. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Hmm. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Well, you notice something. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's Christ's headship over his body. That he might sanctify her, which means to set her apart as his own. That's unity in Christ's body. And then, why? Having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor and without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the glory that the body gives to its head. All of the grand indicatives of chapter 1 are captured in that single statement about a husband's love for his wife in chapter 5. Or in chapters 1, 2, one, two and 3, I'm sorry. So, again, right there, you, you understand this much more clearly when you understand the first half of the book. Now let's go back to the passage that we read earlier and talk about these imperatives because they're important. And again, I want you to see them in a way that you didn't see them when we read before. 
Therefore, here's another therefore statement. Having put away falsehood. Therefore, having put away falsehood. Um, by the way, he doesn't say therefore put away falsehood. He says therefore having put away falsehood. If he says put away falsehood, it's an imperative. When he says having put away falsehood, it's an indicative. So he says therefore because of who you are in Christ. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. You didn't see that the first time. Don't tell me you saw that the first time. When we went through it the first time, we just all got beat up. Amen? Do this, do this, do this. And now right out the box, it says, therefore, having put away falsehood. That's what it means. We're Christians. We put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth. And then watch this. He doesn't just say speak the truth. Speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Unity in Christ's body. Why should you speak the truth? Well, number one, because you're part of Christ's body. And number two, because we're members of one another and you desire unity in Christ's body. You speak the truth to your neighbor because your neighbor belongs to you and he belongs to Christ. That's why you speak truth. So there's an imperative there, speak truth. But the indicative is there. Speak truth because that's who you are. Speak truth because you belong to one another. Speak truth because your neighbor belongs to Christ. And if you are in Christ, redeemed by Christ, transformed by Christ, and desire to build up the body of Christ, how could you do anything but speak truth to your brother and sister in Christ? Do you see the difference there? Speak the truth. Gird up your loins and find a way to do it. No, he says, speak the truth because that's who you are in Christ. It's consistent with what God has accomplished in you through the person and work of Christ. You're able to. You're able to, not because you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps or because you want to so badly. You're able to because you are a new creature in Christ. See? Do you see? That's not beating us up. That's giving us hope and encouragement. Look at the next part of this. Or we are members of one another. And he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Why would you want to do that? You wouldn't want to do that, would you? Why would you want to give an opportunity to the devil if you're part of the body of Christ? But this is connected to something else. Let the thief no longer steal. Could have stopped there. But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, could have stopped there. And we could turn that into works righteousness too. The opposite of stealing, right? I'm going and getting something illegitimately. The opposite of stealing is working hard through labor so that I can have it legitimately. So don't do that. Do the opposite of it. But he doesn't stop there. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Whoa, we just connected that to the body again. Stealing means that I illegitimately benefit from the work of another member of the body and tear them down. Working with my hands so that I can have something to share with another member of the body means that I'm building the body up. 
It's not just so that I can do the opposite thing and be better. It's because I've been reminded of who I am and whose I am. And therefore, it's the only thing that makes sense. You belong to one another. Don't steal from one another. Because after all, what that brother or sister has is what God in Christ has given to them. And he intends for them to have it. For you to take it from him means, first of all, that you're not content with what God has given you. Huge problem. And secondly, it means that you don't think God knows what he's doing when he gives it to them. Shame on you. Work. Have surplus so that God can use you to be a blessing to the other members of the body. Look at the next part of this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. By the way, where does that language come from? The grand indicative in chapter 2 with all the building language. Amen? Now remember what the Holy Spirit is doing according to the grand indicative in chapter 2. He's building us up into a household for God, into a temple for God, right? Now we see the building up language, which takes us back. Let's read it again in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now we see the building language. So he says, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. By the way, corrupting talk is deteriorating talk. It deteriorates the structure. But instead, talk that's good for building up, which takes us back to the grand indicative of chapter 2. As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And now, one of the hardest verses to interpret in all of Ephesians just became clear. What does it mean to grieve the Spirit? People have asked you that before. And usually we kind of go, well, um, you know, um, according to chapter 2, Who's building us into a dwelling place for God? The Holy Spirit. Now, in chapter 4, he uses building language to take us back to chapter 2. And after he uses the building language, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Spirit? By tearing down what he's building up to the glory of Christ. By destroying unity within the church. Even through your words that you speak to your brothers and sisters who are not only members of your body, but members of Christ's body. By the way, in chapter 5, what does he say to husbands? She's not only a member of your body, but of Christ's body. Same concept. And it all goes back to the indicatives in the first half of the letter. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then here's the one that we use with our kids all the time, and we kill them. Be kind to one another. And, and a lot of times we stop right there, especially if you have really little kids. You're mean to your brother or sister. I, 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 be kind to one another. Now, I, I, be kind. Let me get, and here's an example of what we talked about earlier. The danger when you use the imperatives and not the indicatives. So here is little Johnny, and little Johnny is four years old, and little Johnny just did something to little Susie, his sister. 
and it was unkind. And we say, little Johnny, Ephesians 4.32, little Johnny says, be kind to one another. Okay, little Johnny, you need to work harder at being kind to your sister. We're rooting little Johnny in works righteousness, and we're taking him away from the gospel. Well, should I not correct him? Yeah, you should correct him. But here's what it ought to sound like. Johnny, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ also forgave you. Johnny, do you know why you're unkind to your sister? Because you have a wicked heart and you're unconverted and you have not experienced the kindness of Christ. You have just been reminded that you need to be saved. So what you need to do is flee to the cross, beg God for forgiveness. If Johnny hears that growing up, he hears he needs Jesus. If he just hears the imperative, he hears that if he works hard enough, he can be good enough. That's serious. And 95% of our parenting is works righteousness based and not gospel based. We give them the law. We give them the rule, constantly telling them that if they try hard enough, they can be righteous. When what we ought to be doing is constantly pointing them to the reason that they are exhibiting unrighteousness, which is because of their desperate need for Christ. My daughter came in. I tell you, we have eight children. They range from 22 down to seven months. My, my daughter, my eldest daughter, I have six boys and two girls. And my eldest daughter is our oldest child. And she came to me one day and she said, um, dad, I just, I need you to deal with your son. I said, like, which one? <laughs> and it was this one son in particular who's just, you know, usually a handful. I said, well, what's the matter? Have, have you just, did you get angry? You know, because there's a rule in the house. No, no discipline when you're angry or anything like that. She said, no, I didn't get angry. I just, I just couldn't. I said, well, what happened? She said, well, I, I went in and, and, and he had done whatever he did. And I, I brought him in and he was going to get a spanking. And I did what you, you know, taught us to do. And I sat him down and I said, do you understand why it is that you did what you did? Why it is that you're in here? And he looked at me and he said, yes, because I'm a wicked sinner and I need Jesus to save me. <laughs> and I said, then what happened? She said, I got up and I walked out of the room. <laughs> I had nothing left. <laughs> Did he understand that? Not yet. Not yet. But how much better to have that echoing in his mind as opposed to, you can keep the law if you just try harder. When you use the imperatives without the indicatives, you are telling people again and again and again, you can keep the law if you just try harder. That's not what Paul does. It's not what anybody in the New Testament does. It's not what we should do. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ also forgave you. In other words, you can forgive because you've been forgiven. And if you don't forgive, you don't understand what it means to be forgiven. This says that if I have unforgiveness toward you, you know what I'm saying? If I have unforgiveness toward you, what I'm saying is, 
God can forgive you, but my standard is higher. That's what unforgiveness says. God can forgive you, but my standard is higher. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Uh, I can't forgive my father. Why? Well, because he just did terrible things to me, and he was a terrible father, and he was awful, and and I can't forgive him. He's going to have to show me da-da-da-da-da before I can be forgiven. Really? I don't think you're saved. What? I'm a Christian. No, I don't think you are. Because a Christian would understand that you have been more wicked toward God than your father could ever be toward you. And you would be ashamed to talk like that, knowing that Christ died on the cross to forgive you for worse. See, just because you put the indicatives and the imperatives together doesn't mean that there cannot be strong admonition. But the admonition goes back to the cross, to who Christ is, to what Christ has done. How can a Christian be forgiven, understand the magnitude of forgiveness, and then harbor bitterness and unforgiveness toward another? He can't. He can't. Who am I? If the God of the universe can not only forgive, but forgive at his own expense, the death of his only begotten son, what on earth is too big for me not to forget? This is where the indicatives and imperatives come together. Here's the other thing. As God in Christ also forgave you, he connects it to the gospel. When we don't forgive, let's say the person is not a Christian and they haven't been forgiven. Well, that means they're going to die and go to hell and spend eternity, eternity being punished for their sin. When I don't forgive a lost person, here's what I'm saying. I know you're going to hell, but that's not enough. I need you to experience my bitterness toward you also. I'm not satisfied with the justice of God being poured out through his wrath in hell. I need my two cents too. I need to know that you feel bad and that I made you feel bad. Because the justice of God in hell is just not enough for me. I need vindication for me. It's not enough that God is going to be vindicated against you. I need to be vindicated against you because after all, the world revolves around me. No, sir. No, sir. Whatever that person did to you, if they don't know Christ, they'll spend eternity paying for it. If they do, Jesus died for it. And if Jesus died for it and you don't forgive, you're compounding his passion and his humiliation. We must forgive because of the cross. We must forgive because of the gospel. We can forgive because of the cross. We can forgive because of the gospel. I don't have to vindicate myself because I'm not worthy to be vindicated. And God will vindicate his righteousness. So I don't have to worry about that. It's only because of that that we can live life not holding grudges, folks. It's only because of that that we're not like the Hatfields and the McCoys or the Hutus and the Tootsies. Where there's just, you did this to me so I do that to you. And you did this to me and I do that to you. 
because the only sense of vindication and justice is me making you pay. When you belong to Christ, you understand the world completely differently than that. Are these imperatives important? Yes, they are. And we should obey every one of them. But more importantly, we can obey every one of them. And to the degree that we look to Christ and to the cross, we are motivated beyond measure to obey every one of them because of our love for the Savior. Isn't that good? My prayer for you and for those to whom you preach is that they would be liberated by the preaching of the cross, that they would be liberated by gospel-saturated, Christ-centered preaching. Not leave the room going, okay, if I do these five things, I'm good enough. But they leave the room going, Christ is sufficient. This is my prayer for you, for me, and to all of those who hear us preach this book. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness toward us and for the righteousness that we have in Christ, for the manifestation of that righteousness as you change us and grant us an ability and a willingness and a desire to be obedient. Grant by your grace that our obedience will be rooted in the cross. That we might make much of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.